0: Alright, this is Ricky, and this is Brendan, and you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for hope I
1: used to find in a case of lions' head folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pain we share, on oh, that American ideal, it was made over arguments in an early morning, but.
0: All right, Brendan. So here we are Monday evening, August 23rd. You told me I'm not allowed to make any more small talk about the weather, but I just made it through Hurricane Henri. So I'm feeling, uh, well, I guess it wasn't quite a hurricane by the time it got here, thankfully. Um, but I'm I'm feeling like that's a notable one. First, first almost hurricane to almost make landfall in like 30 years. Big deal.
2: I kept waiting for it to hit, right? It was, like, Saturday we thought it was going to be a problem, and then it was, like, Sunday we thought it was going to be a problem, and Monday it might be. It's actually raining right now. Maybe as like, outside as hard as it has been in three days. But, you know, feel lucky. Uh, Largely here in Boston we weren't super affected, which is is good, obviously. Um, And certainly, you know, hope those people in Rhode Island who were affected. Um, Everyone's okay. And there was some, you know, flooding in Tennessee, you know, so – you know, any time that we can kind of escape a natural disaster, not to take this in a dark place, but feel, feel lucky to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It maybe dovetails a bit into our entire uh, topic this afternoon or this evening, just with, you know, all the pronouncements of what people should be doing in order to uh, to protect themselves from the impending doom of a storm that potentially is not coming. Yeah. And that's the, the, the COVID virus and the Delta variant that's,
2: you know, back, not that has ever left, but is back in our lives in a major way. So that's what we're going to be talking about this week. It's another single issue episode. We went from, you know, very depressing uh, topic in Afghanistan and the withdrawal from Afghanistan last episode to the maybe just slightly less depressing topic of you know, COVID and all
0: of... Different depressing.
2: Yeah. So not like, uh, not the easiest conversation to have either in terms of... Uh, you know, emotionally, but also just like intellectually, they're, they're challenging conversations. And, you know, Ricky, like we, since we started this podcast almost a year ago, now we could have talked about COVID every single week. And we've tried not to do that. We've tried to only do that when, you know, it's been like particularly notable in terms of policy or uh, health related reasons, uh, because we know that people are sick of it, not necessarily what, what you want to hear. And at some point, if you've been hearing something for no joke 18 months now, you start to tune it out a little bit. But with the Delta variant uh, really on the rise, particularly in, in a number of you know Southern and Midwestern states, I mean, here in <clears throat> Boston, the the acting mayor, Kim Janey. Just last week, uh, instituted a mask, reinstituted the mask mandate for all indoor um, spaces in Boston, which will take uh, effect this Friday, August 27th. And Governor Baker looks set to require masks in school for all um, public school kids in, in the K to twelve grade. So, uh, what with the spike in the variant and the increase in mandates, and of course, now there's debate over vaccine mandates. Uh, we did feel like this was, you know, a time where, where we couldn't just keep ignoring it or pretending that it's
0: it's not happening. It, it is happening, and we felt like we should talk about it. Yeah, and I guess throw into that, um, you know, very topical or uh, very timely our podcast recording. I think just earlier this evening, they have um, approved. The FDA has given like a full federal approval to Pfizer's COVID nineteen vaccine um so you know there's going to be more to come on that but an important development um for a number of reasons in terms of how uh federally they can start to mandate some vaccines in a way that they may not have been able to when it was sort of that express um approval that the vaccines had had in the past
2: yeah and we saw pretty much immediately after the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin came out and said that they were going to start mandating vaccines for all active duty military members, which was uh, unsurprising, like you said. And it's, I mean, obviously, it's really good that the Pfizer vaccine got through FDA full approval. It, you know, ideally, means that it was just as safe as as we all hoped. Uh, and there were at least a segment of the population that were saying, like, I'm not going to get this vaccine because it hasn't even been fully approved yet. And to me, of all the reasons not to get the vaccine, that was a fairly good one, right? Like, like, you know, when people say, you know, look at all the other vaccines that we have, whether it's, you know, the measles or the smallpox or the mumps, right? Like, those went through years and years of tests and approval before it got passed. And if someone said, look, this vaccine was done in less than a year. I'm not totally comfortable taking it yet. Well, hopefully, if it's, it has gone through the full testing process now and we have the data is certainly better than it was previously and the FDA approves it, doesn't necessarily mean, I think, a healthy skepticism of the FDA and government is always, you know, kind of warranted. But at least for me, and hopefully for other people, this is like a a, a dose of of good news here.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think unfortunately, a lot of people who maybe outwardly expressed uh, hesitance to take the vaccine because it wasn't federally approved were also just kind of returning to life as normal, um, which I think is a large part of the reason that we're. Uh, well, one of several reasons, perhaps, that we're seeing this additional w- additional wave, another wave of uh, increased positive tests, but also hospitalizations and and some of this other stuff that we're we're seeing. Here.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna have uh, another guest on our, our program this week, Brian Scully, who you may know as uh, the lead singer of the local country music band, local here in Boston, uh um, Dalton in the show. And they've certainly played some a fair amount of national games at this point, too. Uh, so we're going to have him on to talk. He's got a unique perspective as someone that you know, his livelihood is very much affected by <clears throat> all of the, the rules, regulations, the restrictions that have happened over the last 18 months as a musician, you know, not being able to play in, in certain places or not being able to play at all really here in Boston, Massachusetts for over a year. Um, and also he's the father of, of three um children, like middle school age children. And so he'll he'll provide a unique perspective, and at least from you know, for this program of talking to you know parents that we haven't done a ton of. So really excited to to talk with him in a little bit. Ricky, before we get into that, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Like, so I mentioned you know the increased the reinstatement of these mandates from Acting Mayor Janey and, and Governor Baker. And like well, thoughts on that. Like Massachusetts has a population, 18 plus population has 73% of the population has gotten at least one shot, Has um, is totally vaccinated. 83% of the population has at least one shot. Um, I think the total population's including children at like over 65% right now. Um, we know that close to 700,000 people in Massachusetts have gotten the coronavirus. So, you know, you imagine that there is some sense of antibodies present in those people too. So, you I know, mean, we're looking at conservatively, like 75 to 80% of people here in Massachusetts have uh, ideally some sort of antibodies uh, to the the COVID uh, disease. And yet these restrictions are coming back. And so like, what what do you think about that? Are you in favor of some of the things that we're seeing not in favor ambivalent? How are you feeling?
0: You know, certainly Massachusetts having such a high vaccination rate really felt like, you know, this is a, a reason, you know, part of the reason that we were pushing the vaccines is so that we wouldn't have to turn back sort of the clock on a lot of these things and being as you know, having as high a vaccination rate as we are, and still feeling like we need to turn back the clock. Obviously, you know, there are new things that we're learning about the Delta variant, but it, it's definitely disappointing. I think the challenging thing about it, um, more so than anything else, is that once again, it feels like we're not necessarily tied to specific scientific metrics. Um, that, that are sort of readily comprehensible to people who have to kind of make sense of how their lives are changing, you know, over and over again, every quarter. I think some of that, the nature of this vaccine, the variants we're seeing, breakthrough cases, although, again, there is like that, that question of just like the marketing and communication, right? Like, we ne- we knew always that the vaccines were not going to be a hundred percent effective and so i you know you're often not seeing that like the the context of all right well where are we in relation to where the data sort of suggested we would be anyways like if if it's all in line then what are we doing is there really a reason for us to sort of panic or, or are things happening the way that they should be um All that being said, like things like mask mandates, if we're still able to, to do mostly everything just with sort of the inconvenience of masks. And I don't want to downplay that, like there is, you know, something lost in our ability to communicate with each other. Definitely it's an inconvenience, but there are other reasons that masks are, uh, you know, kind of impact the way that we interact on a day-to-day basis. Um, But if that's kind of, you know, what we're seeing as like the major limitation and it's not the full lockdown situation, I guess I'm okay with it. Um, But I think, you know, one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to Scully is that like, we've talked about this before, like being a, you know 33 34 year old kid with no kid i say kid intentionally with no you know real responsibilities no children um my particular work is not you know gravely affected it's it hasn't been that bad on me so personally selfishly like these are not things that i've yeah had to pay all that much attention to
2: yeah you said a lot of interesting things there one of the last things that I think is really thought-provoking is you kind of like rationalizing to yourself, well, at least it's not a lockdown. And that's true. But I think one of the fears that I had, and we've talked about this a little bit before, is the fear of government, once they get power, which they often do in, in times of emergency, whatever those emergencies look like, they're they're reluctant to give a lot of that power back. And this is one of those things where, you know, they can get up there and say, whether it's Cheney or Baker or Biden or whomever, right? Like, well, it's not as bad as it was before, and you're kind of like, and you and I can pretty much say like, yeah, that's right, right. And you kind of be like, it is. It wasn't as bad as it was a year ago, and so I, I can adapt to that. But like, if we, if in reality, they've now changed the goalpost and set like, and they've changed our expectations for what we what we want, and what we wanted was to get back to like pre pandemic normalcy. And now we can kind of justify to ourselves, well, at least, at least it's not a lockdown. And I think that's a a, a slightly dangerous mindset. Um, A few other things you said that resonated with me. One is that we were sold by nationally, you know, at the state level, at the local level, that the reason to get the vaccine was so that you don't have to do these other things. And so it's very frustrating when Massachusetts in particular has done an excellent job of getting their population vaccinated. 83% of 18 plus has, has a shot. Like I said, like that's an incredibly high number. And we show as people from Massachusetts, I feel really lucky to be from Massachusetts for, for people that are like, are educated and believe in science and like trust the, those things. And if you don't, that's okay too. But I feel lucky to be in a place that I, you know, I think is looking out for each other and, and ideally making themselves and their families, but also their fellow neighbors. Fellow people in our communities, like safer, Um, and to for us to come out and like do everything that the government necessarily told us we should do, and then for them still to say that we're going to put these like reinstate these restrictions—that's the political nature of this. Where the primary for the mayoral race in Boston is September fourteenth, I believe, so just three weeks away, and you know, Mayor Acting Mayor Janey has come out in put this mask mandate on it's a bold move right i mean certainly it could backfire and there could be uh pushback against uh, an an increased you know the reinstatement of these restrictions uh but it's very hard to think that this is there's not uh she didn't workshop this with her political team before, before rolling out this mandate
0: yeah and i mean that has been unfortunately the entire like saga of the coronavirus here in the u.s but really i mean we've seen it unfold globally that like we can't just do the best thing based on the best science it's gotta be how do we how do i tailor this political message and you know and we've talked a little bit about the boston mayoral race but it's a it's a left left. like you know left of left field type of race and so you know she's playing to her her crowd right now with these types of um yeah you know with with this action and so not and i and i don't necessarily want to say that like there isn't some cause for concern with what we've been seeing with the delta variant and like we don't you know as massachusetts i think in many ways we have been willing to go a little bit further earlier and potentially you're you know you could also that we're reaping some of those dividends today of of what, of some of the actions that we took while other states kind of did it in different directions, right? So, yeah, as much as I definitely hate the political nature of this, and I think you would be naive not to ascribe some of what is going on um, as political, I think it's also probably unfair to do a lot of kind of monday morning quarterbacking of how people in power have to make these decisions with such limited amount of information um and like yeah we're a state that is always going to tend on the cautious side in part because of who we are politically am i do i love that not necessarily but potentially do i prefer that to the alternative i would probably say that i do yeah, that, that's a fair point, and like I don't want to minimize the the serious nature
2: of the of the you know Delta variant or the COVID you know virus in general, and how it's disproportionately affecting certain people of certain ages or uh, racial demographics, and that people are getting sick and people are dying, and those are uh, I don't want to minimize that, but it's absolutely true. I, I guess for me, it's more what I see as government overreach in the sense that, like I was saying earlier, they they've asked us to do all these things over the course of the year, last year and a half, and as you know, population of Massachusetts, we've largely done those things, and now it's they're again moving the goalposts or you know, ch- changing the rules or and, and reinstituting these now. Mass- if it was coming from private businesses or private institutions, then I would be okay with that because it's, those, it's their decision as a private business or institution, and I can either frequent those businesses or not. Like it, it's more like an individual choice from both the you know a business and a consumer point of view, as opposed to. From the government and the fact that the government continues to to you know change the directives and,
0: and add, add, add these restrictions, yeah that's frustrating for me yeah that, I think that has been one of the more interesting aspects of the like the variety of responses that we're seeing because you know you could argue the same type of government overreach in the governors that are in Texas or Florida that are Banning mask mandates or like not allowing any vaccine requirements. Um, but I think before you know we get too far down this path, um, now may be a good time to invite Brian on, get his thoughts on the situation both today and you know how he's survived uh, over the past year, year and a half. And
1: when the we want, it can be done. Like
2: Alright, so we now welcome onto the program Brian Scully. Uh Scully's, you know, when when you hear his voice, you might recognize it if you been in and around Boston at all over the last decade. Uh, He is a former uh, writer for the Boston Bruins. He's a former educator as a teacher and as an assistant principal, but he is most famous, um, certainly in recent years, as the lead singer of Dalton and the Sheriffs, which is a semi-famous local country rock band. Uh, and you might also recognize him, even if you haven't been around Boston the last decade as the voice, the singer of our theme song. So, you know, this is this is a familiar voice. He is he is one of my and he's here because we are going to talk about states with with the vaccines and the masks. And you know, he's got a unique perspective. One, both being a musician, um who, for whom like his livelihood has been substantially affected by the the mandates over the past year uh, and the restrictions that have existed in Boston and in Massachusetts and New England. Um, also, uh, he has three children. Scott, you can correct me in a minute, but I think that they are right now 10, 11, and 13. Okay. Uh, and so we haven't had a chance really to talk um to like a parent of like younger kids uh, who have gone through the pandemic so so skull we're really excited to have you and excited to hear your perspective on 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 all of this these vaccine stuff over the last year and the last few weeks um so welcome to the program
3: thanks man good to be here so you know i was wondering when i was gonna get the invite i was getting a little offended but i mean whatever you know (laughs) so it's good
2: i didn't want to put too much pressure on you it was enough i, I had asked the skull uh you know a while back to see i was like you know can, what do you think about creating a potential theme song and so we had to we had to brainstorm that and we've been uh really excited about that it's also a song that you can check out on, on spotify if, if you if you're interested uh you know we uh you know we have uh we clip it at the beginning but then we have the full song at the end and so you can always go find that on spotify all right. but all right so Let's get into it so March 2020 a uh, year and a half ago literally eighteen months ago at this point I my perspective you know we had just you had just played a big show at the paradise like the first week of March it was awesome we had a as, as the band the Dalton shares we had a big spring coming up i Ricky, this will be interesting to get your perspective here too. The next big thing was St. Patrick's Day, which is one of my very favorite days of the year. My plan that day was to go see Scully at Capo in the morning. And then Ricky was hosting like a party in the afternoon and it was going to be awesome. And like, we kind of knew things were coming down. Uh, We knew that restrictions were going to be in place. We knew that things were getting a little bit dangerous. And so I texted Skull, I texted Ricky and I said like, hey, I think I'm out on Sunday. And then- Scully canceled the show. Ricky pretty much canceled the party, and that that was pretty much it. <laughs> like that was the weekend. Everything shut down, and at that time, as people recall, at least here in Boston, Massachusetts, it was hey, two weeks. Give us two weeks to figure it out. So, Skull, can you take us back to that moment? Like for you watching this come down, obviously it had a huge effect on all of our lives. But you know, as a musician. It had a particular effect on your life and, and your livelihood. So what, what was your kind of thinking at that point in time?
3: So it's, a little, it's interesting to go back, back now and think about it because I, I have a very different perspective on that moment now um, um, as opposed to what I did. I think when it was happening in real time, you know, I think we were, we were all appropriately worried about what was going on. And, and you know, I, unfortunately, I think that it was really undersold <laughs> to us in the beginning. Uh, and, and I think that led to especially in Massachusetts I think there's a, just a lot of people that are fairly responsible to their other citizens like I, I know it gets it's kind of an interesting political dyna- dynamic here in that you know it's painted as a, a you know kind of with one one broad stroke as like a very democratic place that it is solidly democratic in certain ways so I think that they're, kind of was this built-in reservoir of people that are willing to kind of do more for the community. I think it's just been ingrained in a lot of the culture, especially in the South Shore and Boston. Um, So I think everyone just kind of stopped, you know what I mean? And and they, like, took it seriously and and tried to do the best they could in the short term. I know, for me, there was a lot of panic. Um, You know, at that point, we are sort of on the edge of, like, big big things, and I I didn't know – where the next money was going to come from and I didn't know how long it was going to be. And at that point there wasn't structures built in place to like help looking back on it. Now I'm shocked by how little we knew in the beginning. And I'm, I'm equally shocked by how, you know, malleable the facts are still to this day. Like uh, I, I would argue that one of the reasons we're sitting where we are right now is that we, we know almost as much as you know, it's, it's, it's almost very little, right? Like it's been, the actual virus is, is dangerous. How dangerous, we're not really sure. Um, the cure for it is sort of, you know, we have an idea that the vaccine's that work, but here we are getting ready to lock down again in cert- certain respects. And um, the effect on how it affects kids versus adults, we still don't really have a great handle on that. But, you know, so from from now looking at it at this point, we're going into our third 16 their reality, and I, I know Brennan has experience in education, and if you lose six months as a student, it's a big deal. And I think that this idea that at some point, our inability to know when it will end, we start to have to think about the things that will, people will carry with them. Like I only go back to when I was teaching, the first group of kids I had sort of came of consciousness during the aftermath of um, 9-11 and the way things are changed. So like for me, when 9-11 happened, it was one of the scariest things most of my life. And, and you're wondering if it will ever be the same. And I knew it was like, like before and I knew it was like after. And I feel like the kids that I was teaching back in like 2006, 2007 were kids that sort of had their entire consciousness thrown off. And it, it for me, it varied by, their exposure level and their risk level that they felt towards it. So there's some kids who were supremely affected by that day. And some kids that were blissfully unaware. I'm not sure that public schools are ready to handle a blanket bump like this in people's careers where every single kid is going to have a reaction to what happened, to not being in school, to being afraid. It's There's not going to be just like, I knew somebody who was there, or I had ties to New York city, or I was, you know, I have people in the airline industry, you know, it was literally just like, or even back then it was a, a big deal, you know, kids whose parents were sort of in the national guard and then all of a sudden it became real for them and they were going to serve their country and stuff. So I just, there was pockets of kids affected at that age. I can't even imagine the rise in, you know, anxiety issues for kids this era. I think that that's, I think a lot is made of like millennials being millennials and then you also realize like i think there's not enough study being done to like the effect of a new world you know it's not just the digital age it's it's the idea that that the world is not separate from the world <laughs> i know that's not the most eloquent way to say it but like you know here was we were in america thinking we were in this bastion of you know we're safe here like there's things going on in the world we'll play the world's policeman i just think for a lot of kids that changed on that day and i i, I could see it in my own family some of the the issues that we've had just getting our kids to stay connected, to stay focused, to have a goal. It's, it has not been easy. And I, I don't know that we're prepared for some of the things. And I think that, you know, much like we didn't know in the beginning, how long this would be. I don't think that politicians right now and policymakers, if there are any left are thinking about three years from now, five years from now, when these kids that are currently in fifth and sixth grade start getting out into the world and making their own choices and, I, you know, I I just think it's going to be, the the effects of this are going to last maybe a generation and a half. I, I could see this being as impactful as the development of OxyContin was to our generation, and you know the way that people kind of self medicated over anxiety. I just I, I get I get very nervous about what's happening next.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really fair comparison to like the September 11th um, thing in particular because well, Ricky and I were were younger as that happened, but. Really, Ricky, if you can hop in here, but like I got speaking for myself, like you kind of said, like I was largely blissfully unaware of the world. Like the, you know, the internet still wasn't like as ubiquitous as it is now. Social media didn't really exist. And as a younger kid, like you just kind of grow up. It was very much like, a, at least for me, like in the, in a bubble. And then like it happened when I was in eighth grade, then I taught eighth grade for years. And like, Scott, to your point of you could just see that there was a total difference in perception is like those kids, my kids teaching. We're, all, we're so much more aware of the world in this pro United states like the place in the world and the the goings on in foreign policy and the sufferings of, of other people, and those are all good things there 's also you know a part of it that it's you feel a little bit less safe in the world, and like you know that there are people out to that that hate the United States and i uh, you know there's there's less of <laughs> in addition to all of the difficulties of, like, social media, like, even I think being so aware of the world makes it harder to be a kid and just to to kind of live in, like, the naive innocence that, you know, maybe our, like, our parents or my generation, like, was able to grow up in, and, like, to your point of, like, there, every kid has been affected by this, and it may be some more than others, but so kind of curious, you know, your perspective, and you don't have to talk specifically about your children, but, like, you know, as a father that has seen your kids affected by this or their friends, potentially, or, you know, nieces, nephews, like what has, what have you seen? Like what, what kind of worries you most about uh, the effect that this year and a half has had on kids, particularly like, uh, I mean, really, honestly, I was going to no, yeah. any age.
3: Honestly. Well, yeah. so, so my kids, I think were really affected and, and they all fall into that middle school era. Um, and one of the things I think the biggest for them, you know, there's two parts to it, right? There's just number one, losing the day-to-day of academic growth or just academic stamina. I think that's been a number one thing. Number two, which really should be number one, is the just the sheer anxiety that was generated by the whole process of not being able to say to people when they could go do the things that ground them. Like, when can we back, go back to see Nader Grandford, Florida? I can't tell you that. When are we going to be able to go to the grocery store? I can't tell you that. We're going to do it when it comes. And, and I think that those things or two of my children embedded themselves in it, in them, and then manifested in very different ways. You know, one of them was a little more prone to outbursts. You know, we had to bring swearing into the Scully household as a, you know, there's some pretty good research about how that helps. And, you know, we brought that in for her and, you know, for my other son, he started internalizing it to the point of like having a, a tick for a week. And, you know, it went away. It was fine. It was just literally, he was not able to express his emotions of what was going on. And I think that leads to the third piece, which is kids in that era, they developmentally define themselves by how others see them. So if you take away a kid's ability to define themselves in that middle school era by, I do a good thing. And then these, this group of people like me, I do a bad thing. And then I have to make up for it. You know, they were basically relying on us and their siblings for their sense of self. And I really think that that was lost. And, you know, we had to, we, (laughs) I can only speak to like how hard my wife and I have worked and some of the things we've neglected in our own, like, eating healthy or exercising. It's just been in the sheer, you get up in the morning and you're putting out fires all day and you're trying to, you know, we're very dialectic with the way we deal with our kids and we are, everything is like, we're going to talk about it. We're going to stop right now and talk about it. And I, I believe that that helps. I don't see how you're going to recreate that in a school setting day to day with, you know, kids moving to classes. Um, But I, I think that it just was it was overwhelmingly hard to get that done every single day and to, to find the energy to do it. And you know, it's it's amazing. You know, our our kids are in private school. We had to pull them out. We just couldn't get what we were looking for. And I, I don't I don't that's not an aspersion on teachers or administrators or kids. All three were and are set up to fail right now. They're they're not being given the things to do their job the right way. They're all in odds to a degree, and uh, I just don't see a pathway forward and the nice thing about the private is that they get to innovate quicker. You know, so like last year everybody just thought, well, we'll be back by fall. So no one made any infrastructural changes to their schools and the public schools. The school that my son goes to started building, you know, I think it was probably 20, 30 million dollar upgrade to the HVAC system in April of the year before. And they wanted kids in school and they got them in school and, and these kids were in there with masks and they were being separated, but they were finding ways to bring joy. Um and it was, you know, my, my oldest son, Tommy, got to play four sports. It went every day. And now I, we've got our youngest son um, who is just, I think, lost without the structure of the day and the friends. And he's been in football practice for a week. And he's like a new kid again. And we're not all the way back. Like, we, we actually skipped him a grade, which is kind of crazy. But we just like, I can't have my son not like school. And so he's back now. And like we're, we're going to spend the next two, three months getting him to grow in a very difficult way. To sort of get back to that, because I, I lost my mind when the idiot uh, secretary of education—I don't know if I could say that on your show—but from Massachusetts was like gave a three-year plan for getting kids back. And Brendan will tell you, if you lose a kid, you have three weeks. That's it. You, you like you either need a change in situation, like a charter school does, where the parents buy in and they put them in a new environment, and you make them, and the social pressure moves them. You cannot take three years for a whole generation. The impact of you know, Brennan, I don't know if this is your generation as much as it's my generation. I'm i am 41. There is, a, I would say 20% of my generation was affected by opioids. Like I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked that there was 20% of the kids had some disruption to their life because of that kind of a drug. And it's just, I would see it when I was teaching and these, you know, the, the kids are living with their parents, their grandparents, not their parents. And, you know, some people come back, some people don't, but it's just, I feel like this is going to be, if you take a whole, if you get word from the you know commissioner of education or the secretary of education in your state, that you have three years to fix this, those kids are not going to make it. Like they're not going to, I mean, there's kids that know how to do it. There's families that help it, but I, I just I think structurally you're going to be looking at a lot of problematic behavior in the, in the short term. I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to take years to manifest. This is going to be like the Vietnam generation that, went to Vietnam, came back and was sort of shunned and not told to talk about it. These are kids that are empowered to talk, their, speak their mind, to get information. And honestly, even my kids, like how do you teach a kid to work hard when there's nothing to do all day? You, you, it's just going to be a really, I don't think that we're ready for it. I, I walked through the town of Situate today. There was four businesses that were closed today because they couldn't find anybody to work. Like the ice cream shop, a sub shop. You know what I mean? Like if, if you think about that, at this point, you have to consider that if you were a college kid, would you go and be worried about getting Delta right before you go to college? Like, they, these kids are locking down for the two, three weeks before school, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you're talking about an entire generation that's like, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I just think there's going to be a, a lot of disconnected youth that come out of this that may or may not have stamina academically to match what their brain can sort of think about. And it's, you know, I remember one of the biggest things about being kids is, you know, working with kids is you see a kid who is incredibly smart, but never learned how to talk to other people or never learned how to express their opinions without yelling at somebody. And I think those are the kids that are in the toughest spot because they they can feel and think all these emotions, but they don't have the ability to sort of make it work within their own life with other humans. I get worried about it.
2: Yeah. And, you know, so it's like all that stuff you're saying is like so much of it is intangible and like that you can't really see it, but that it will have tangible effects. And that might manifest itself in like behavior issues in school or at home. And it, and it might like later, it might manifest itself in, you know, rises in drug use or mental health issues or crime or joblessness or whatever. And then some, some of that stuff, like you said, is going to be short term, we can already kind of see it. And some of that stuff is going to be longer term. And it's hard to see like what those effects will really be. And certainly something I'm sure researchers will be studying for years, the effect on, on all of the various age groups. Um, And to be fair, like you, as you, like you detailed your struggles with your kids really honestly, and certainly appreciate that. Uh, But you guys, you know, you, there's two parents in your household, right? You guys both speak English. You're both white. You're both have educational like backgrounds, totally. you're, um, your wife's a teacher too, you're, you're a former educator. Like in many ways you had, and you have the ability to move your kids to different schools if, yep. if you needed to, which, which you did, which is great. And like, I got kind of to applaud all of the efforts both you and your wife have made on behalf of your kids. And it's still how difficult it is. And we just know that the vast majority of families are don't have that you know fortunate situation. It, it can like, you can only imagine how much worse it is in situations like that. Oh, it's, I,
3: I think that, and this is going to sound I have no scientific basis for this, but you know, when kids started playing shoot 'em up games and they were disaffected after nine eleven I do think that 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 idea of like it, it was something that you could do creeped into society, and maybe it doesn't creep into everybody, and you know I don't want to get into a gun issue here, but the reality is', is like when we were growing up, mass shootings was not something I ever thought about, right It was just not something that I worried about and now it's a part of our culture. I just wish that there were still policy people in government, the people that were career policy people that understood that every action has six outcomes as opposed to one outcome. I was having a conversation. That, you know, I have a family member that was very high up. I don't want to name him because I, I don't want to like whatever. We, don't, we wouldn't agree on a lot pol- you know, politically, but man, the guy knew his stuff and he was right in it and he was there advising people And saying, well, this is what happened in eighty, and this is what happened in eighty-eight, and this is what happened in ninety-five, and I think that you know, that kind of historical accounting seems to be gone from policy. And I I wish there was someone there being like, well, this is what happened when we we went through Vietnam, and this is what we happened in in nine eleven, and just providing some of that insight and thoughtfulness to the fact that we are we are on the front edge of this problem. We are not on the we're not solving this problem. We've created our response has created other issues that we're going to have to navigate, and I don't even think that a lot of the people at the highest levels are even thinking about the problems that they're creating. And I, I think that as we go back into the school, I was so pissed, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I have had a major issue with the governor in our state for, for the way that he has said one, one thing to one person and then gone and done the other thing. And he spent the entire summer saying he was not going to have kids go back to school in masks. And on Saturday morning of this or Friday morning of this week, rather than him come out and sit there and say, we're going to do this because I'm getting pressure. And this is what the right thing to do is, or the Delta has changed. We have to do this. He sent Mary Lou Sutter's up there to say that kids now have to be in mask in a week, right? Without, you know, I think he maybe he had the, the education secretary be the person who actually delivered the message. Then Sutter's talk about it behind the scenes, which has been his MO from the beginning. But he's sitting there like, do I really have a problem if there's mass? I mean, personally, yes, but can I live with it? Absolutely. But tell me in June that that's a possibility. Don't spring it, don't say on a, on a Monday, we're not doing this, and then say on a Friday, we are doing this, and then don't be the one who said it. So it's like, if you give me enough warning, I can sit here and coach my daughter around this whole thing. And, but the thing, Brendan will, will get a chuckle at this, but I don't know if I always go back and read the policies just because there's always something hidden in there when this guy's up there. And uh, I don't know if you saw, do you see what the rule is for how they're going to fix the mass situation? No, it's, it's just, everything is always like start at the top, realize that what you're doing is going to get challenged legally, looking at the makeup of the Supreme court and realizing that you're not going to win eventually. And then foisting off that responsibility to private businesses and all that liability and everything goes down there. So here's the scenario. On September, if this gets passed, which it has not yet, but it's their intention, when the kids go back to school, everyone's in masks. But on October 1st, if 80% of your population is vaccinated, everyone can take off their masks. So we listened to all this complete BS all year about if you want to wear a mask, it's your own thing. You just literally took a thing that shouldn't have been divisive and you taught every other kid. Imagine the school that goes there that the kid has an immunocompromised thing that's nobody else's business who chooses to wear a mask afterwards, right? And the kids know that he does. And then someone, they hit 79% instead of 80. And are all going to look at that kid and be like, well, you're still wearing a mask. Like, literally, you just made it. Like, we're a competition now. Can we get 80% of our cookies sold and we'll all get a, a half day in a pizza party? And I just, I couldn't believe he did that because he's literally now, instead of mandating, instead of saying, you know what? I'm going to test out and see if a law from, you know, the, from the smallpox era still stands. Uh, No, I'm going to put it on the backs of nine to 12 year olds, or I guess it would be 12 to 16 year olds to go out there with their parents and make the decision. And then if they have the peer pressure to get it done, that's what's going to drive it. And I think that that is just, just some of the worst leadership I've ever heard of. I can't, I can't believe he's doing it. I I read it and I was like, you're putting this on the backs of families again, and 12 year olds and 16 year olds. and, And it's, it's not what it is. Like, come to me and say, hey, guess what? You're going to get vaccinated. And this is what he did with, I don't know if you saw the flu vaccine thing, but he made, he, he made everyone get the flu vaccine bef- by December 31st. So there was a big crush during COVID. Every kid had to have it. Letters coming out and the letters are insinuating, literally from the school nurses, like, if you don't do this, we're going to report you to DCF, right? So my family, I'm like, I've never done it. I happened to take the one that was like 10% affected back in like 2004. And I just never did it, you know? So I just push it off, push it off. We get to December 1st. I said to my wife, okay, well, we'll go get them. Like, I don't really care. At this point, it's a little safer to go out, whatever. So we go make the appointment. We go down and get it. The next Monday, he removed the mandate because it was not legal and he was going to get sued. So he just took the whole thing out. And all of a sudden, it was not there anymore. No, no, no formal apology, no nothing like it was just gone. And like, that's what I worry about with this is like, you don't, you don't want to, you know, the, the legislature doesn't want to hold Baker accountable and Baker wants to blame the legislator for not, you know, creating laws that they can go behind. And the reality, it's all just trickling down to us. And it's just, it's, it's very, very frustrating because it's like, so what do I do? Do I go send an email, a strongly word, worded letter to the editor? You know what I mean? And then like, end up as like somebody, like I'm a crazy person. <laughs> I I just, you know, I, in the end, I'm just like, have to like make myself go to bed and not write letters. You know it's like? I don't think write that's it what you're supposed to be out. Exactly. Exactly. So I just, I, I, it's just such a lack of leadership, a will to lead. You know, I, I can literally see the acting mayor trying to use a very, no offense, uh, Brendan, a very Republican tactic of like, well, I can get my 20% here and my 5% here and my 10% here. And she's like, you know, a first person to say that masks were going to happen in schools because she wants the teachers. And then the last minute, she's going to, you know, sit here and do masks and the thing. And it doesn't even literally, it's to the best of my knowledge that they're actually telling people in the industry, we're not going to enforce this. The law makes no sense. It's like, get you, you have to show that you're vaccinated or test within 72 hours or wear a mask in all these places. And like, it's just, it's just political pandering. And I I don't know let it's make anybody safer, and then they go there. And if licensing's not enforcing it, and the police aren't enforcing it, no one's wearing the mask. So it's just this thing to make your sixty-year-old aunt sitting at home feel better about life. I I just don't have a lot of respect for that. Apologize for the rant.
0: No, I mean I, I think that that's like the the whole like the crux of it, right? You have both what they're trying to achieve, but then on the other hand, like the communication and the accountability. So this is. Maybe a weird question cuz I mean clearly you've been following a ton of what's going on in Massachusetts cuz it impacts your life you know more than anything else but have you been following anything else kind of nationally have there been approaches that you've been like I see what they're doing I like what they're doing we should be doing more of that
3: So it, like always right it, it it's always going to come from innovation from outside of government right now and uh so it's all liability. The the number one thing that I think we could do policy-wise was to issue a blanket, you know, an amnesty from responsibility for businesses to for spreading COVID, right? Like you could put in some clauses in there like that say that like, if you are negligent, you know what I mean? We don't have to get rid of negligence here, but if there was a blanket immunity for spreading of coronavirus, I think you'd see a lot more innovation in the way people handle it. But right now, everything is like, like, CYA. So in the concert industry right now, all the artists began to demand a vaccination card or a test within 72 hours. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, it doesn't even make any sense if it's the vaccinated people that are spreading it to the unvaccinated people, right? Because of the breakthrough cases and we don't, we can't track them yet. We don't know what the viral loads are, but that's what I've seen some studies, especially early on with the Delta thing saying that that's how it's happening seen some studies since then and said, that's not how it's happening so you never know but if you're talking about keeping the virus out of a building your vaccination card doesn't prove that it's out of the building and a test from 72 hours before doesn't prove it's out of the building and i'm sitting here saying they're only doing this the artists so that they have coverage that that says if someone sues them for wrongful death 18 months from now they're like we use the best practice at the time and i'm sitting here saying well why aren't we doing just mandatory vaccinations or mandatory testing, one or the other, both of those things would gatekeep the population a certain way. It was all vaccinated people. At that point, the risk for hospitalization is almost nil, right? And if it's all tested people at that point, every single walks in person, walks in with the same exact level of risk, right? Within 72 hours. But this other stuff doesn't make sense to me. The cool thing that I saw was, and I guess it came from Ireland, the local owners of the house of blues and the paradise rock club, sitting here most affected by it. They're indoor venues. They're running vaccination clinics for free in their venues this week. And if you go there and get vaccinated, they'll give you two free tickets for going down there. And I'm sitting there going, that's innovation. That's like, you know, I don't don't think that people want to live this way anymore. I think we can make some arguments about whether the data indicates we even should up here. But that to me is a business saying, I understand it's a hard time but I would like to do something to help it get better. And, you know, I wish that I had a little bit more standing and a little less money invested in our show this week, because I would love to make a stand and say one way or the other, all testing or all vaccination. But as me, I can't be the person out there on the front lines trying to change that right now, because I, the, the show could very well fail and I don't want to make the news. I just, I literally just want to have a show with the people who want to be there. And I will literally refund anybody who doesn't want to go. Brendan will kill me, but like, I'm not, I just want to have the show. You know what I mean? Uh, But it's just, you know, it's, I don't feel like there's just a lot of leadership that's going to come from the regulation side of things. I mean, regulation has become so administrative that it's almost detached from, from a voting responsibility in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's just, you know, to me to be sitting there in the city of Boston, having the licensing board and other people sort of communicate that this is not going to be, enforced to a T, that's just, that's just, it's just wrong.
2: So the show Skull referenced is uh, this upcoming Friday at the Leader Bank Pavilion down in the Seaport. And we'll come back to that show at the end. But so, you know, Skull, you weren't able to play here in Massachusetts from March of 2020 to really May of, of 2021. And so do you want to talk a little bit about, I mean, and this is kind of, I think your frustration with the communication, whether it is, you know the former mayor, Boston Marty Walsh, or the acting mayor Kim Janey, or um, you know, Governor Baker the whole time, and certainly we could take this all the way up to the the leadership at the, pre- the presidential level under you know particularly the Trump administration. Um, but the the moving goalposts and, and in some sense uh you, you kind of understand it and you alluded to this earlier of like look we, we didn't know we we still don't know a lot of things so like it's been a constant evolution of what we know or what we think we right. know and we're you know trying to get as much data as possible uh but I know it's been frustrating certainly last year at least for you of like those fourteen months where you weren't able to play and as I said at the beginning and t- as a teacher at the time we were told two weeks give us two weeks to figure it out and obviously that as a, you know as a teacher that turned into the rest of the year and then all of all of last year for for many schools uh and then as you know bar and restaurant owners those the regulations constantly changed and as a musician like you you weren't able to play for 14 months so uh like i said in some sense you understand it where it's slight, i mean unprecedented for this generation of leadership to deal with an issue like this and so you you understand like that science does change and and evolve and we should change our policy to go with science but i know there's been a lot of frustration certainly from a communication level at least with our leadership in terms of how the goalposts continue to move whether it was from an educational standpoint or from a more like business oriented standpoint
3: yeah so i think that that's it's really just a lot has been made about how media and certain politicians have changed the narrative on this but i actually think a lot of that instability of truth came from not being upfront about the scientific process like people were saying that they know things every single day to try and achieve an outcome and they did not know those things and even guys like Fauci afterwards saying well we said that because it was the best thing we could do at the time and we were and I understand that I guess my thing is I would rather have people come out and say the truth and just be like we don't know but this is what we think right now and I think that because that was so malleable. And particularly, I mean, I'm a huge data guy. I've always been a data guy. It doesn't matter if I was covering sports, whether I was writing grants for like dropout kids or doing stuff for the, for the band. I'm a huge data guy and their data processes have been so wrong from day one. The number one thing about data is, is it comparable and is it the same scale? And I know that in the state of Massachusetts, I know of four separate times that they changed the way they counted deaths. And currently right now, this is what's interesting. If you look back at the data over the period before we opened in April and May and the period right now, the death numbers are are largely still the same. And if anything, you know, maybe a little uptick on certain things even before Delta. And that's because right now in the state of Massachusetts, if you have tested positive, I believe it's 60 days before your death from COVID, it's listed as a COVID death. You have to literally be murdered or in a car accident to have them not consider you a COVID death. So no matter what you do, like I'm sitting here saying these, these are important things because right now this week has more cases and more hospitalizations, I believe than this week, last year, when we were still locked down and they were talking about open up and they didn't. The reason it's important is that there's so much context is missing from that. And we've changed the way we kept track of it so many times that it's really hard to be like, compare apples to apples. Like to me, There's an acceptable risk factor that comes in at this point, particularly with my business or like my kids, where it's like, okay, we may be slightly above where we were last year, but we've also been completely open. So that actually means that the vaccines are essentially providing the same level of protection as quarantining and isolation was last year this time. No one's pitching that. Like go out to people and be like, listen, in Massachusetts, yeah, we're here we are. But literally the vaccines have made it the same outcome as what we were doing before. And and you could argue better, you know, it's like, no one wants to really talk about it, but I think the average, I believe that so far 75% of the 150 ish people that have died who had been fully vaccinated had preexisting conditions, not like little ones, like major indisputable, you know, conditions. And the average, the median age was 81.5, which I think is three and a half years longer than the expected age in a state. And it's awful to say these things, right? Like, but the reality is, is that we're not pitching enough that the vaccines appear to have worked and have worked better than what they were approved for. You know, they're talking about 90% effective at preventing disease. It seems like they're actually operating at even better than that in some cases. And, you know, just the the whole narrative has been around sort of political outcomes. I mean, if there's no special election, if they held the special election when they were supposed to, you know, four months ago in Boston, I don't think there's any chance that there's masks right now. You know what I mean? I think that there would be, we'd be rolling through it. We'd have, we'd have someone who wouldn't be afraid to get elected and would go up there and do what New York did and create a, a a vaccine passport program. Like think of how helpful that would be. Like from my perspective, I don't want to take on vaccine checking. at shows because that then says to everybody on a legal sense, I believe that I'm qualified to check vaccines from a counterfeiting standpoint, from a, you know, a, a license, you know, whatever. Like I'm not qualified to do any of those things. The liability is on me and it's negligence as opposed to like other things. If if the, if the state comes up with a way to do it and we choose to use it or not, choose to play or not, at least the liability for any fraud or any breakthrough cases is on the state, which is just a, a much better place for it to be than to be on us. Like we have to be cognizant of the fact that if we ever got a little bit of money, God forbid someone got sick and God forbid they passed away. If we're the ones checking the stuff at the door, we are liable for negligence as opposed to liable for living in a time where this was happening. And I, I, I think those two things are very, very different. Uh, you know, it makes me worried. And I, again, it comes down to that the state becoming more involved in being upfront about what they know and what they don't know and how they're going to help people recover from this.
0: Yes, I mean so obviously there's a lot to be frustrated with with how Massachusetts is handling a lot of the sort of the communication and then like what you, like what you're saying passing the buck around with the accountability. Um, I guess maybe if, we're, if we take a step back, right? We're also seeing that in general Massachusetts is doing much better. Now you've definitely done a you know an important job highlighting that there's a cost to the. Reaction, But how do you sort of weigh that, like, in light of what we're seeing happen down in, like, Alabama or Mississippi or even Florida and Texas, where they are actually having, you know, real health ramifications from the decreases in available ICU beds or something like that to where we are in Massachusetts today?
3: So, I, Ricky, I've done a lot of research on that and, and tried to piece through those articles, and I have not found many actual um, lack of resources in ICUs. Um, I, what, I've, what I've found is actually a lot of those places are understaffed and have been for a long time. So, you know, there was a big story circulating about 10 days ago about the ICU beds for children um, were gone in Texas. There was, there was going to be none left in the Dallas metro area. And you look through it and you read it and you realize the reason it's there is because they don't have any NICU nurses. You know what I mean? So, like, their neonatal intensive unit doesn't have staffing up. Right. And, and I think that those are the sort of important distinctions that are made there. I, you know, uh, maybe call me, call me whatever. This is what's interesting. And Brenda will tell you, I often live in two worlds. Right. So I can sit here and be completely frustrated about the way it's being handled and still comply with all the guidelines. I don't think that people actually comply with the guidelines here in Boston. I don't think it was just Karen Polito that was throwing a party on the first weekend in her, in her backyard. It wasn't. And that's why it was okay because it was socially acceptable. But I'm sitting here being hurt by it and not doing that. There was parties everywhere through. People were, there were speakeasies going on. I chose not to do it because I feel like that was the right thing to do. And Brennan and I had a lot of conversations about that. But I, I don't believe that the stories that are out there, I think you have to be very, very picky about where you're getting your news sources from. You know, there was, there was a lot this week. Some of the news coming out of Boston Children's Hospital just basically saying like all of these numbers make sense. If you remove the entire 60 plus population from the COVID cases, because the vaccine worked, you're going to double your child cases. We have plenty of rooms at Boston children. And on top of that, these numbers don't indicate more, you know, that it's, it is more dangerous for children. It actually just indicates that we're not catching all the, the things. And my biggest fear is no one is testing. Right. And I saw this week that one of the major test manufacturers had actually purged all of their supplies for making new tests, right? So what's going to happen here in Massachusetts that's different than others is that the kids are going to go back to school in a week and all of the testing things are going to be enacted and you're going to find all the cases we're not seeing that are represented by the numbers. Like if you look at say a doubling of children's cases, you can look at that and say it's more virulent. Or you can look at that and say, well, we're not testing, we're testing at a tenth of the capacity of what we used to test at. And those cases are probably out there. So it's gonna be very interesting to see how that plays in the next four weeks is that when the kids are found to be, because it's not just the kids, right? If the kid goes to school and they test positive, the entire family gets involved in a testing chain. So and that's what happened last fall, but to a large degree, was that you know, under different circumstances, because we hadn't had the vaccine yet but you're going to see these testing protocols come out and then more and more people are going to get looped in. And then we're going to be back to the days of waiting to get a test because it's just not going to be as many supplies. And I just worry about how that's sold. Is that is the data tell us that it's actually more dangerous? Is the data tell us that we just stopped testing and we're not looking at it. There's this guy, um, his name is uh, Michael Mina. And he is uh, sort of a, he's more of a public health official. And I think he's moved around a little bit, but I think he's over it like MIT or Harvard, one of the places locally. And he's been advocating from day one that every American gets a supply of those Binax tests. And every morning you test yourself before you go out in the world. And if it's a positive, everyone stays home. And then they get a PCR test to do it. And every, every single day as an American, you do that. And he, he, he has the data to prove it, that within a, a matter of weeks, you would be able to isolate and figure this out, even in the face of vaccine reticence. And, and I, to me that kind of thing is, makes sense to me, right? Like that's, that's a way like you could actually find out every day now if we spent the, the amount of money that's sitting, you know, I think there's billions of dollars sitting in Massachusetts right now for rental assistance that no one can touch because they can't figure out how to distribute it. Like that kind of stuff. Like th- this is not a lack of money that could have fixed this. I, I just would like to see, I would like to see the hard data from this stuff because it, it to me, some of what's going on right now on on both sides of it is not very scientific it's like here's a tagline here's a clickbait and then you read the bottom of the story you know and you're like well it doesn't even make sense you know what i mean i i don't know and i don't know what the best data source is i thought stat was for a little while um the globe developed that stat website and that seemed to be pretty good and would kind of break down the latest studies the new york times has done a pretty good job of like breaking out data as opposed to opinion pieces it's like I I like the, there are, there are some outlets that are doing that where it's, there's a purely scientific article that accompanies all of the kind of more leaning one way or the other stuff. And you can find some good nuggets in there. Like uh, (laughs) my takeaway is this, vaccines appear to work. They appear to make the life better for people at a point when there's above 70%, right? That's why Massachusetts is doing pretty well. I don't discount the danger of this disease, I don't discount the inequities that have caused different people to have different reactions to it that are more severe or less, whether it's health. I mean, to me, it's, it's Brendan it goes back to education where this is a public health failure as much as anything else where it's like, you know, I, I if you're not healthy, it's going to hurt you. You know what I mean? But we should be sitting here as, as if there was true leadership, the way that kind of Baker and, and all of the politicians here, you know, Walsh have tried to say we're the leaders here and really they're just the last men standing of the, of that vanguard of people that were pushing for this approach. I, I just feel like, I feel like we should be leading again. I feel like we should be out there saying vaccines are the way, and they should be sitting there negotiating with the crafts to say, you can't come into this facility unless you're vaccinated. Like that to me is leadership. Get, get with your business partners. Don't just send a plane to the next, you know, to China or to get, to get masks or down to, you know, Haiti for an earthquake, like get them in a room and say, we need to fix this right now. You can't let people in defend until this, and you can't do this as opposed to like putting that same position, you know, same decision level on the 12 to 16 year olds to beat that 80% threshold in their middle schools. Like, you know what I mean? Like sit down with Robert Kraft and say, this is what we expect of you. If you don't do this, we're not going to cut you the favors that they're cutting them right now, which is huge. Like, Completely absent in the mask mandate from last week is any major event, right? They were all excluded. If you go look at the, the regulations, there's literally an exclusion for professional events that's still on the books from before. So if you go in and look at it, when they were saying 90 minutes or less, unless you're seated at a professional sporting event, it's in the, it's in the language. So, like, we have this big show. We're, there's no mask mandate at, at, at our thing. At our show this weekend, you know, it's technically an outdoor venue, but like, instead of putting it down on us, like get those people in a room, tell them that this works, tell them that you need some help, create a vaccine passport, create incentives, not this stupid lottery, like, like just get out there and do some real work. I was sitting at the chicken box house last weekend. They're shutting down Boston and still running the, the $70 million come to Boston and visit us ad and go back and support your restaurants at the same time. They didn't even bother to pull the ads from traffic. So I'm sitting there watching on the bottom. It says bottom of the thing, it's running, you know, mass mandate in Boston. And the commercial is like, come to Boston and visit the restaurants. Like they, they it's just ridiculous to me. I don't know. I mean, I'm sort of uniquely positioned to be like a little bit negative about all this, but like, I just want real data. Like Brendan will tell you, I, every day for the first six months, I would download the data and work it myself because I didn't understand what the hell they were doing with it. So I don't
2: know. also had nothing else to do for like those six months so it wasn't like he, he was doing that instead of doing something else and to be fair to him he couldn't he wasn't allowed to do anything else so scott let's talk about that uh how did you how did you end up surviving last year
3: uh the the good graces of our friends you know uh, it's we we have a a, a group of people that have, have given us a career it's it's literally it's a very boston story we don't have a record label we don't have anything we just have a bunch of people that like to drink and go sing songs. And, uh, those people came together in a variety of ways, some big, some small, but all important. And, uh, you know, we, we created a company, we sold some shares to some people, um, you know, and, and tried to create, you know, a, a Patreon that didn't suck. So, that you know, there's actual benefits to it as opposed to like, give me money, but feel better about it. You know, it's like Kickstarter only you'll feel better about yourself. So this, this was like, you know, real, real business. And, uh, you know, we we had a couple of people reach out in really big ways, you know, and help us during important moments. You know, it, I would say there was at least a, a dozen times where the decision to pull the plug on the band was real, despite all the help that we're getting. And then someone would come through with something that was unexpected or a new avenue would open up. And, you know, I think we tried to be also supportive of people. We did a lot of streaming. Um, I didn't want to charge for streams because I didn't feel like we ever really charged before. So it was not like, I don't want to go out and do some streaming concerts. So we did a lot of Instagram lives. And I think that a lot of people became, they got to see my family in real time while I was like singing from my living room. And it became a thing to do together, you know, four or five nights a week. And I think we kind of, we managed to still build our culture and move forward. But, you know, it was, it was a hundred percent on the largesse of our friends <laughs> and we appreciate it because we should, be dead right now (laughs) should be Dalton Dalton should be dead
2: and how's it been and we're all thankful that you're not uh (laughs) literally and figuratively uh how's it been being back over these over the summer so like I said we started back in May it's been about three months I know it's been kind of a wild summer for you and so Ricky and I were talking before you get on and is there anything Ricky had this idea like is there anything that you appreciate more aside from the fact that like you get to go do your job and do what you love but like what's what's it been like over over the course of the summer and kind of being back in front of people again
3: i think the number one thing i mean we've always been a very interactive band with people come to our shows we've always built relationships i feel like a lot of those relationships got deeper and some of them got deeper over instagram or messages or emails and then i think the best part has been seeing random people come up to us and talk about how they were impacted by us playing still through it or couldn't wait to see us again or new babies. Like, I, I just feel like the, most of it was just people couldn't wait to officially be out. Most of the kids that come to our shows. We're partying for nine months before we were ever, ever legal, legal to do it. You know what I mean? But for us coming out to these shows, it was like, okay, this feels normal. And they were very excited to be back. But I, I really, I just enjoyed the interactions with the people after the shows and before the shows. And, you know talking to them about things that happened during pandemic and you know how it how it affected them and i i just i feel like we we really grew a community you know i we were talking about this before you know we're i think we're 31 tickets 3100 tickets into our show at the pavilion and previous to that i think we had only ever recorded 900 <laughs> you know what i mean so like i don't i said this to brenda before i'm like Minus the pandemic, are we doing this? Maybe not. You know what I mean? So it's like, I, I have to be very careful about the uh, the whole monkey's paw angle to this thing. Um, you know, that people are behind us right now and they know that we were hurting for a while. But, you know, I don't want to give credit to COVID, but it's it's definitely different than it was before.
2: What an obscure reference that is. I don't know <laughs> if anybody else listening to that is going to get that monkey paw reference that he just made. But if you do, and you please reach out to me, because I'll be like, wildly impressed. Uh, so let, let, let's talk about... That the show, this so it's this Friday, Leader Bank Pavilion down the seaport. Uh, you said we've sold you know, 3,000 plus tickets at this point, which is cool. If people tell us about the show, tell us, tell people if, if they still are interested in getting tickets for themselves or, or their friends. Well, you know, how, how you they know I,
3: I think that. that one good thing is that we, we have a very young crowd, and I, I would say our vaccination rate of our demographic is probably one of the highest out of anybody. A lot of kids that are in their first jobs or still in college. And uh, for a lot of people at that age, you know, vaccination was expected. So in terms of how I feel about things, I feel like most of the people are treating themselves right and doing the right thing. Uh, it's also open air, which is cool. And there's actually some tables in the back that are completely open air uh, outside of the tent. Um, it's no, we shouldn't be able to do this. We shouldn't be playing this venue. There's just a lot of good people along the way that have led to this point And a lot of, Brendan will tell you just kind of risks that we all took, you know, my wife and I, particularly Brendan, you know, helping out and just, just like we took a lot of risks to get to this point. We we basically had the idea of trying to kill the band for the last four years. And like, we didn't want to know if we were just hanging around, you know, be the guy at the barbecue at 45 being like, Oh, he plays in a band. And then you like play at the local bar. Like I will totally play at the local bar, but I will not lead that with that as my persona. You know what I mean? So um, that very well may be my future, but I will not be driving around like acting that way. So, uh, we just kept going one step to the next step to the next step on buildings. You know, th- this is pretty much the top dog in Boston that we could probably hope to do. And, um, we've, we've done really, really well. And it's going to be, a, I think it's going to be a very happy crowd. I think that people are, feel like they are part of this journey and, um, we sold it out in a specific way. We sold it from front to back. And the cheapest seats were up front. It's like reverse, like Billy Joel style. And uh basically, if you come there and you don't know who we are, you're going to watch everybody else have a great time in front of you and be like, oh, that was really cool. Like, I may not have known the songs or whatever, but like you could just – I think you just feel the community at our shows. And I just feel like since we've been back, we've had a couple of shows that hinted at it where we were like – people were just so excited to be back. But if you put – you know, I, I think we're probably going to have with 3,500 people, 3,600 people. If you put that many people who are like-minded, who are sharing song, like I believe that's a powerful thing and I, I don't know how to codify it. Um, I'm just lucky that it's something that we can do. And it, it's, I am very much looking forward to that kind of like ancient experience of like a group of people singing together and feeling the same. And uh, I, that's really, if you're going to, if you're interested to come down, you're going to, you're going to see it. And I think you can even probably participate in some of it. And, uh, just be careful because it it does become a habit at some point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can definitely vouch for that. Uh, I think I probably saw my first show with Brendan, what, like 2013 when I first moved back to Boston and he was obviously already addicted at that point. Um, but just just what you are saying, the, like obviously what you guys are doing is great. But the crowd into it, it really doesn't get much better than that. We're, I mean, just uh, as uh, a tacit fan that I am, not not quite the rabid fan of Brendan's variety, but very very proud to to be able to see you guys really level of success. It's it's incredible.
3: Yeah, I, I feel like that's what everybody feels. They feel like they were a part of this, and and. It's kind of like the one thing about Boston is you can't fake this stuff, right? So like, they were a part of it. That's the only way it works. You can't sell this story of like you were here. Like we did a commercial, be like, thanks for helping us build this. It if it wasn't true, it wouldn't work. And it's it's really going to be a lot of fun. Yeah,
2: if you believe like I believe in the power of a song, sing loud with yep. your friends. <laughs>
3: <laughs> exactly.
2: So if if people out there are listening and you're on Instagram, you can follow um, Scully at Dalton Sheriffs. Uh, and in in his bio, he has a link to buy tickets. Like you said, you can still get tickets over the course of this week. The show is Friday, 8 o'clock. Yeah, let
3: uh, I think doors are at 6.30, show at 7.30. We probably take on, we probably take the stage around eight thirty, eight forty. 8.40.
2: Cool. Um, yeah, so encourage every, everyone to go if if you can pick up tickets this Friday. You know, bring, bring your friends, bring your family. It, it should be a blast. Uh, otherwise, you, you besides Instagram, you can you know you can just Google it, like Live Nation. You can go buy tickets for Skull. Uh, and if you can't make it this Friday, you can catch them at the local bar, like you said, uh, playing at the Bell, Bell in Hand on Thursdays and Sundays, or Capo on Tuesdays, or you know, all over Boston and New England. Yep. Oh, I I just want to say
3: thanks for having me on because I feel like. I've, I've sated the need to write a few letters with this conversation. Like, I feel like I was hurt. You know, I like it. it this podcast has given me a way to express my views in, in a way that's acceptable to my soul.
2: Look, we're just trying to provide like a vehicle and an avenue. <laughs> I knew this it's, has been pent up for a while. This is like a good time to get you on.
3: It's, it's really just Brendan being like, we need to make sure he doesn't suck on Friday. So let's get all of this pandemic stuff out right now. And he'll feel like it's working. I, I wouldn't be shocked that this never even makes the year.
2: Just, it's, just,
3: it's, just, it's just a set up.
2: It is the... He just needs to unburden himself. I always tell him he's got to have like a clear mind, like going, going into the big shows. And so, this is just an R- Ricky's not even
3: here right, right now. It's just like an animatronic <laughs> Ricky in the background. It's just pre recorded.
2: People helping people out here. Um, That's right. But yeah, go. With- and yeah, if you're on Spotify or Apple Music, whatever, you can search Dalton and the Sheriffs. Um the the song that's our theme song is called Early Morning Buzz if you're interested in that. But they've got a you know a ton of good stuff out there. So um Skull, we very much appreciate you taking the time. We hope this uh, helped you as and, and uh, you enjoyed this as much as I we I Feel do. so
3: much better, my friends.
2: <laughs> that's great.
1: And even if the same our ship that's <laughs> coming in, know that every song.
2: So it was really good to have Skull on. We appreciate uh, him joining in and sharing his perspective. Uh, as he mentioned, he and I talked frequently uh, throughout you know this last year and a half in the pandemic. And I knew he had a lot of thoughts um, on on this stuff. But it was it was still really interesting to hear him kind of put it put it all together. And uh, there are a couple of things that stood out to me that I'd love to check in with you on. I think one of them was you know, his view on leadership. And I knew that he has been really frustrated with leadership and it has, it, you know, I think it was pretty clear that it, it has nothing to do with party, right? Like he, he 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 ripped, you know, Baker most, but I mean, also like Janie or Walsh or Trump or Biden, he was frustrated with kind of the overall state of leadership and the lack of, um, you know, policy people, as, as he put it, um, still in government. And so I knew he was frustrated with leadership, but I thought what was interesting was that it wasn't. Frustration from like a Monday morning quarterback perspective, like you had kind of talked about, you know, in, in the opening. Like it's it's really easy to do that uh, for all of us, especially <laughs> like as we get more data and more information. We know that our politicians are dealing with this stuff, you know, for the first time in the moment. But Skull's frustration, which I think definitely resonates with me, was, in my opinion, was kind of too pronged. It was one the lack of transparency and communication and the lack of really honesty in communication, and then the lack of uh, like data-based solutions to these problems. And so for someone that's really prides himself on being a good communicator and being data-based, I guess it's it's not surprising to see that those are his frustrations, but I think those are fair frustrations. And I I think those uh, are frustrations that, like I said, are kind of like with all levels of government and if we talk about failures of government I think those are fair things to say and don't feel like revisionist history of, of is more just being like you know real leadership would have would have been more transparent from from the beginning and more honest about what we know and what we don't know and and that has continued till you know through today with these variants and like the changing circumstances so uh, I thought those criticisms were interesting and, and fair
0: yeah yeah and I think building on that just sort of the desire for people not to want to take the responsibility in either direction. So whether it's, you know, enforcing some type of vaccine mandate or trying to put in place some type of testing requirement, um, trying to like push it off onto, uh, onto businesses or, you know, individual institutions without really empowering them to do anything about the rules sort of, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, as the guidelines evolve, I think we have learned it's always a trade-off. Whatever you're doing is a trade-off, you know, we potentially, and it's, I mean, it's like that with every, with every policy measure, certainly, but here it's, it's really highlighted because people experience it, you know, viscerally every day. Um, But yeah, when when we institute a mass mandate in or you know when we try and enforce a mass mandate in school or when we push uh, for virtual learning instead of in person learning, there wasn't always the recognition of like, all right. But what are the consequences of this action? And I think he he sort of highlighted that when he was talking about you know real policy folks will think about all right when we put a policy in place, it may create a solution to the problem that we have, but. in more likely than not it's going to create other problems and other consequences so we need to understand kind of holistically what we're doing and how that kind of um and how that like and how that trade-off is playing out and we need to be honest about look we have to do this now we know this is doing you know xyz that's not great and this is how we're also going to try and and tackle that and i think what he was sort of alluding to is there was a lot of short sightedness almost that we got to handle. All right, we'll do this for this specific problem. We'll do this to like quiet this particular political outcry, but there's no recognition of what the kind of, all right, but then what's next? Because once we've done this, we've created, you know, uh, we've opened a new bag of worms.
2: Yeah, that's really well said. It it, it feels like you know people just running around like as as leaks are springing up in boats and are running around and just like grabbing things from one side of the boat and sticking it in the other and then the leak springs up on the other side of the boat and you like you're right it's always kind of like plugging things constantly and um and again we we acknowledge we've consistently acknowledged that like being in government is really difficult and like these are all like none of these are easy decisions to make but it is fair like if you put yourself in those positions to be Held accountable by the, you know the public, the people that you know elect you, and to whom you're responsible, and uh, the lack of coherent policy, uh, certainly in the, at least the way it was communicated, uh, I, I, yeah, that those criticisms, like I said, I think are really fair. One other thing that I thought was really interesting that he hyped on and made me chuckle a little bit. I don't know if you saw it because it kind of go to, went to Collins from last episode, like let's everyone should be a libertarian uh point (laughs) which was kind of out of left field but i I thought it was interesting because i think two of the things that skull was talking about that maybe he didn't say explicitly but one was like his philosophy at least to me i don't want to put words in his mouth seemed to be like hey government should have gotten out of the way a little bit more and that you know for to To allow businesses to try to innovate and in how they solve these these problems and how to try to deal with keeping you know their their customers their their employees safe but also being able to still run a business and so it was kind of that element of it but also you know, and he acknowledged this where he's in a position, fortunately, where he's able to move his kids around and he's been able to move his kids around into different schools to put them in the best position to succeed, which is, which is great. I mean, to me, that's a larger conversation, but it's a, it's a school choice conversation. Right. And it's, I think one thing that came up consistently for me in like listening to him was just like the you know, empowering people as, um, businesses, as consumers, as uh, students and parents, to make the best decisions for themselves and their families. And you know, certainly there are there can be downsides to that, right? When people are not making the the, the quote unquote best decisions. But you know, the, my counter is always like, who's the government to say that they're the ones that have the best decisions or solutions? But so for me, like those points resonate with me personally and politically. And like I like he says those things, and
0: I'm like, yeah, I I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think his point was actually a bit subtler. Like he, he mentioned, uh, I forget the the gentleman's name, but sort of the idea that, you know, what would really empower us to make the right decisions every day is that everybody woke up in the morning and took a COVID test and made decisions that were informed based on like actual, some level of like understanding what your particular situation was. Right. So I think that, you know, The idea that businesses should have a little bit more freedom to operate and to potentially adapt to um, the situation as it fits them, I think is is actually a, a totally a fair one. But I think we have to recognize that in so many ways, individual businesses or even small communities are not necessarily equipped to make informed decisions in face of uh, a disease that doesn't recognize borders, doesn't recognize walls. And so just because you're potentially doing the right thing in your own situation doesn't necessarily mean that you're kind of, if everyone does the right thing, doesn't necessarily mean that the situation will improve if we don't have that added information of like, what's actually going on, where's this thing and how do we, you know, cause I mean, at the end of the day, the vaccines are unquestionably our our greatest uh, path to a somewhat normal life. But while the disease is still spreading and you can argue in Massachusetts that that level of risk should be tolerable, what's happening here should be okay. But in other parts of the country, I think we need to understand that without that additional level of understanding that probably can only come from a top down, like everybody gets tests every day, that may be a role for the federal government, right? Like, I think there are ways that we can kind of figure this solution together and it doesn't have to be, you know, either one or the other. I think that's a, a really interesting point. And I think it actually
2: kind of melds those those two things that Scully and that what we were talking about was that like the role ideally of any level of government should have been to be as honest and transparent as possible and to gather as much data as possible and to communicate that data as effectively as possible to the citizenry. And clearly there was a failure from all levels of government to do that. And then when you compound that failure by then having government mandates, which seem detached from data and like really informed, uh, you know, science-based uh, solutions, then, then there's a lot of frustration. And but I think to your point, like that would be the ideal of government collecting the data as they should and, and saying that here are the best practices and meeting, like like Skull said, with you know the crafts or like business leaders in the community. Um, and you've said this before, where when we were talking about the the success of the vaccines, like and how rapidly they were produced at at the beginning, right? Like the public private partnerships are really like the the ideal. And so I guess. Uh, I want to echo what you're saying is my, my continued railing against big government doesn't necessarily mean that I think that government doesn't have a role to play or like shouldn't exist in this, in this space. It's more like, can we meld what government can do best as the role of kind of like, you know, the umbrella, the overarching kind of top down thing with all of the things that, you know um, you know, the innovation that the private sector provides. And so uh, I think Skull was kind of trying to say that. And that's also what I think you and I can probably agree on there.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. And I mean, we we did talk, I think, early on that like a solution for a gym may be different than a solution for a concert venue, but it's also that like we could potentially give one gym, the freedom to try one method and another gym, the freedom to try another method. And if we're actually actively testing all the people that goes to those gyms, we may be able to say, Oh, this is the one that works. And this one doesn't work so much. So you got to change or, you know, you have to something like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. One of the other things that um, that's, that Scully was talking about was just the idea of being very careful around the data that you consume and like yes everybody wants more data and we are we live in an age that you can get your hands on all kinds of numbers right like we're talking uh infection percentages uh you know number of daily cases number of daily uh tests there's all kinds of information that you can find in a variety of different places some more reliable than others but even among the reliable sources Um, I think we know that data in general is used to tell a story. And I think one of the big challenges that we've faced is that in many ways, the narrative for, for a lot of these, (laughs) the so-called story around COVID has already been written and we've seen it be written and rewritten over and over and over again, right? Like last March, it was first, you know, we're praising uh, Cuomo and some of the Northeast governors for really taking some of the lockdown steps. And then two months later, we're finding out that actually in those states, they have some of the highest per capita death rates. And then all of a sudden we're saying, well, look at Florida and Texas. Those states are doing very well. And, you know, fast forward like six months later and and the situation is completely flipped again. So I think one of the things that has been interesting to me, and it's got to be an absolute nightmare for policymakers. Okay. Is just the idea that yes, you know, facts are (laughs) there's no such thing as like, you know, untrue facts, they may all be true, but the what do you take from them and what are they actually telling you? And is this something that you should take an action on, or is this something that's really just not enough data to proceed on? I mean, has got to be, you know, something that I don't envy anybody making making decisions on because we haven't even seen, you know, we're seeing these trend lines. And if you look at the, the cases and deaths, it was like a huge spike in March. And then it kind of came down in June of last year and then another wave in the fall. And it's like, every time we feel like we're turning a corner on this thing, something changes and the situation is different. Yeah. So
2: it's, I think not only to, you know, be careful or keep an open mind about like the data that you're consuming as, you know, as as a citizen. And, yeah, I think that's that's a really important point. But also, like you say, not to fall into the trap of that the narrative has been set. And I, I think that's that was a huge issue, like with all of the examples that you mentioned. And I mean, Cuomo now he's an easy kind of punching bag. But we were saying this from from the jump, where it was like he he was he had he signed a book deal, like 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 as if like he like beat. COVID right and like then it comes out that like that all his like scumbagness aside some baggery some muggery uh aside uh that like he was responsible for you know really covering up some of the worst nursing home deaths in the country and um and then obviously DeSantis is you know held up uh, the governor of Florida as kind of this this new savior of like look like Florida didn't really shut down and they'll you know, look look at their rates like you know population wise proportionally like they're doing as well as anyone in the country. And obviously now there's, there's surges because there's, there's cons to that. So it's, I think it's not only like, let's not just believe that the data that we want to believe, like the lies, damn lies, statistics. Like we know that everyone's using data to, to tell their own story, but then that the story's not set and that's that you can't fall like victim to like uh, that. The narrative is done. You have to be open to like, the narrative changing. And I think that goes to like, what we were we were talking about in the conversation with Scully about like, the scientific process in general, like if people had been honest that like, this is the best that we know at the time, that's why we're doing it. But like, we know that things, as we get more data, or that as the science evolves, things are going to change, and then the policies are going to change. And I think like, that's, I keep coming back to that point of like, that's how everybody should have reacted, whether it was in New York, or in Florida, or wherever it was in the country of like, We're doing the best we can at the time and we should celebrate these successes, whether in New York or in Florida, but understand that as, as we get more data, as we see other states doing different things, then, then like that narrative has to
0: evolve. Yeah. And I think, you know, building on that a bit too, it was, it's the inability for, for politicians to say that they're acting under a huge degree of uncertainty and then, changing course once they're, once things are not working the way that they would expect them to. And I think, obviously, um, as someone on the left in the news sources that I consume, those positions are being highlighted right now, particularly in the southeast where you've got case rates are exploding. Now, you can definitely look at the overall charts of and see that we're nowhere near kind of the peak that we were in January pre-vax pre-any vaccines um, of of this of this year which is hard to imagine it was only like seven eight months ago that we were seeing the most deaths per day that we ever had but this idea that like the biggest threat and I don't know, maybe and maybe you could argue that it is the biggest threat is that like that government telling people what to do is the is the problem that needs to be harped on. And that's what you or that's what we sort of see uh, uh, on the left coming out of Texas and Florida. It's like they have a real problem with the number of cases that they are seeing Um and they're still kind of doubling down on no vaccines and no masks. Which is, I think it's it's just hard to understand because I remember that we talked about like that Atlantic article, the liberals that can't quit the pandemic. And and you're sort of like, okay, but now now we have a vaccine that was you know brought to market by, you know, by and large by President Trump and and the right. And we're not getting the uptake in those areas that you would expect would should theoretically be least skeptical of it given who was kind of behind the who was the driving force for the vaccines yeah I don't
2: know if you saw this but Trump did a rally I think it was in Alabama last week and he he told everyone to go get vaccinated and he got booed oh really yeah I did yeah. not like in yeah, no, it's like, why, like, I, I really don't like the cognitive dissonance of, of all of that, of like, I'm going to go to a Trump rally and kind of believe all of these, you know, falsehoods that he's telling me. And then when he tells me to go get a vaccine to like, you know, <laughs> because he thinks it's it's safer that I'm going to boo him and like not believe him now, that that's, I don't know that I can wrap my head around all of that. Uh, And I, I guess just go on a quick tangent about that. Like, that's a clear, you know, the Trump administration, they misman- message that because like, he should have been taking a victory lap for all of the public private partnerships that he and his administration did to get these vaccines out in record time and instead he you know politicized it so badly that now he can't even push his own vaccines without getting booed uh, but it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of again the conversation we had with Colin last episode about like hubris at, like at you know maybe the america the united states as a whole but certainly in in levels of government where people whether it's you know, Cuomo saying like, I I got it right. Or DeSantis saying, I'm getting it right. Like it's, you made this point in the opening where my my kind of complaining about government has largely been in like Democrat led cities where they're saying like, Hey, the government knows best as opposed to like giving businesses or towns or schools, the opportunity to do it themselves. But you rightly pointed out that whether, you know, in Texas or, or Florida, like Abbott or, um, DeSantis they're not giving local control either right like they're saying that we know best and that like we're not going to allow your, your school or your town to put mask may, may- mandates on because we have decided as as, a, as you know as a government as an individual that we know best and, and I think Trump was the worst example of it being like hey this is I'm the one that is going to, is the only one that can solve those problems. But Biden didn't run that differently either of kind of being like, I'm the only one that can do certain things. And maybe that's just, you know, you have to have that level of arrogance or hubris to run for certain positions, right? Like you do have to feel like I am the best. I am the one that's most qualified to solve these problems. And so that's kind of built in. But when it, when that becomes, now I know best for you on either side.
0: I, yeah, I don't like that. Yeah no no definitely i think the 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 trouble with personal freedom in the case of a virus and i think we talk about this a little bit in this in a similar vein with like freedom of speech right it's like we prize freedom to the to the like utmost degree and yet we don't always want where we don't really allow for our enjoyment of our own freedoms to impinge on anybody else's like freedoms. Like I can't, like, if I, you know, want to play music super loud, I can't necessarily do that. If now I'm impeding on everybody else's, uh, you know, freedom to sit in silence or whatever. Right. So like, I think this is where I, I struggle with that argument of that we should be like pushing forward or or this is where I struggle with the rights argument that people should have the freedom to do what they want and make their own decisions for their own body where it's like, yes. Okay. Maybe you could do that, but now you have to live in quarantine and isolation because you're not sort of playing by the rules of everybody else. And you're potentially impeding on other people's freedoms to live safely or you know, whatever. I don't, I guess, you know, philosophically, how do you how do you square those two things? Yeah, I mean I'm gonna like echo
2: some of the themes that I, I said earlier, where it doesn't bother me that if you decide in the public school system or like at least at for, at this point, at, like with the public school, say UMass, right, that if you decide that all UMass students have to be vaccinated and that you know Suffolk or BC or Harvard or BU, all of whom have done this, are going to mandate you know vaccines for their populations for for their student populations, so I, I think. All of that makes sense to me, because at that point, you've given individuals, say 18 to 22 year olds, you know, young adults to make their decisions, hey, do I feel comfortable taking this vaccine for any number of reasons? Um, and if I don't feel comfortable, well, then I can't go to some of these institutions that I might want to go to. And that that's the trade off that they have to weigh, like you said, with any government decision, just like any personal decision, right, there are things you have to weigh. So um, like the government mandates in general bother me, but like, when you, you are saying that as a public school, like we've accepted vaccinations in public schools for, 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 you know, decades, for probably a century at this point. Right. And we've all kind of agreed that that's best. And if you are totally an anti, anti, an anti-vaxxer and you don't want to send your kid to public school, well, I mean, you, you can do that. right? Like, I don't, I don't agree with that, but like, at least I've given, you know, we've given you the freedom to make that decision for yourself. So, I mean, that's kind of how
0: I would square those ideas. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I guess the the back end is like like we've been saying sort of throughout this episode is then how do you empower individual institutions to kind of enforce or yeah or or even just to like monitor that all right the policies that we put in place are actually effective. Uh, Public-private yeah. partnerships, bro. <laughs> there it is. There it is. All right. You got it. Well, um I think oh, <laughs> yeah, as good a place as any to, to call it um hopefully you know we're we're on our way down for the number of uh the number of these COVID-based episodes but uh I guess I guess that is. I
2: hope this is the last one we have to do
0: yeah <laughs> just, uh, definitely all right man I do we'll see ya. you soon.
1: We stay up all night On Garner Avenue Debating All the issues Of the day No agenda Not yet Talking heads running around till we forget Where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left Your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give For hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share all That American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hallway. But to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value of sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some mornings let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give. Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share, loud American ideals Friends made all the arguments In an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Because though Main Street may not sell Full of force, just like you and me When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days will leave your ego through But, oh, I wouldn't give For hope I used to find And chase the lion's head Folks of different mind because though we did not share opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and a nun morning buzz Oh, what I wouldn't give for the whole used to find in a case of lives here. Folks a different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Transmade over hoggy mats in an early morning buzz.
3: I need an early morning
1: buzz.